Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read the Lord's Prayer, and then we're going to kind of move beyond uh, the Lord's Prayer into verses 14 and 15, which are, and this is why I say kind of, uh, these are Jesus' commentary on the Lord's Prayer that he gives after he's given the prayer. He actually uh, fills out uh, one of the portions of the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer and, and, and opens things up for us as he walks through this passage. So let me um, read this to you. We won't read it together this morning, but let me read this to you and then read those final two verses, which will be our special focus. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, and we are unspeakably needy, but you are bountiful and generous and loving. You know our frame. You're mindful that we are dust, and you still intend to speak to us by your word and not allow your word to return to you void. And we pray, Lord God, from the most weary saint here to the most energized, that we would be transformed by the renewing of your word. Lord, we pray that you do this and we pray that you might even break days, months, perhaps even years-long patterns of unforgiveness so that we might walk in the fullness of joy that comes from being forgiven by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been studying the Lord's Prayer, and you may have noticed, if you've been around a while, and I'm just telling you if you're here for the first Sunday, that as we went through the Lord's Prayer, I skipped over the last portion of verse 12. I skipped over the uh, last portion of verse 12, which reads, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, why did we skip over the last portion of verse 12? And I could give you a spiritual reason, but the real reason would be that I ran out of time from speaking on the first portion of verse 12, but I felt okay uh, skipping over the last portion of verse 12 because I knew that at the end of the prayer, we're forced to deal with what verse 12 is saying. Because very interestingly, Jesus feels that the last portion of verse 12 requires special commentary. There's only one portion of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus stops and goes, I need to say a little more. I need to fill that out a little more. And really what he needs to fill out a little more is verse 12. So in verse 12, we pray, forgive us our debts. And then he says, as we have forgiven our debtors, just teaching the basic truth that when we ask for forgiveness, it ought to walk hand in hand with having forgiven other people. But then Jesus comes back to this in verses 14 and 15 and says, no, 
I do not want you to underestimate this. This is extremely important. How important? Well, and here's what it says. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. There's an assurance. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does Jesus mean here? What is he saying? And I noticed as I was preparing this week that this was going to be the third time in just a few months that we're dealing extensively with the topic of forgiveness. And this is because it's come up now three times in the Sermon on the Mount. And I would submit to you that it comes up so regularly because this is a big issue. This is a big problem. Of course, the Christians know that we have a big problem with sin. We sometimes underestimate what a big sin it is not to forgive our other people's sins. And so Jesus wants to highlight this. He wants us to pause and to make sure that we're catching every bit of this. And so what I want to do this morning is, first of all, give you uh, my first point, which is this, that this passage, verses 14 and 15, means what it says. This passage means what it says. It's my first point. The message of these two verses is simple and plain and assuring. If we do forgive others, we can know that we will be forgiven by God. Verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, that is when they've gone beyond God's word, beyond God's law, they've gone out of bounds with what God requires, they've sinned, if you forgive them, your heavenly Father will forgive you. On the flip side, the message is also simple and plain and terrifying. Verse 15, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. C.S. Lewis put it very well when he said, no part of his, that is Jesus, no part of his teaching is clearer. And there is no exceptions to it. He doesn't say that we are to forgive other people's sins provided they are not too frightful or provided they are, are extenuating circumstances or anything of that sort. We are to forgive, says Lewis, them all. However spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated, if we don't, we shall be forgiven none of our own. See, Spurgeon wrote, Unless you have forgiven others, you read your death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. There simply is no forgiveness of sins at a vertical level with God if we are unwilling to forgive other people at a horizontal level. There are no loopholes to this clear teaching from God's Word. And what this means to, our, to Christians, to brothers and sisters in Christ, is if we're not forgiving one another, we will be stunted in our Christian lives. 
We will not have the active, daily, sweet fellowship that comes from repeatedly experiencing God our Father's forgiveness of us. James Coulter wrote, the unforgiving spirit is the number one killer of spiritual life. You know, sometimes we walk through life going, why do I feel dry? Why do I feel dead? And it's worth asking, is there any one, any place where I am not eager and willing to extend forgiveness and where I could, where I actually have extended forgiveness to someone who has sinned against me? The other thing this passage says is this. I said, first of all, that it, it speaks to maybe a place of spiritual unhealth or spiritual sickness in us. But another thing it would say is, if there is a habitual lack of forgiveness in your life, if you will not forgive, your heels are dug in, that person's got to pay, justice has got to be served, this is a mark of not being a Christian. It's that serious. To be a Christian is to follow the forgiving one. It's to follow the one who died on the cross for our sins. And to refuse to forgive others in a protracted, habitual way is a mark of being, it's a mark of not being a Christ follower. And it means that if you were to die today, you would die in your sins. You would die without forgiveness you would die facing the wrath of God without any pardon at all. So the first thing I wanted to say, just to get, to get off the bat, is you might think, oh, later in the passage, he'll explain why these verses don't really uh, mean what they say they mean, or they're not as striking as they really sound. They, they mean exactly what they say they mean. An initial reading of them is clear and poignant and should be wrestled with in every Christian soul. If you forgive others, you will be forgiven. That's an assured promise. If you do not forgive others, there is no way that you will be forgiven. So what's the second thing to say? The second thing to say about these verses, uh, verses 14 and 15 that are commenting on verse 12, is that they do not teach salvation by works. These verses do not teach salvation by works. All human religions, other than biblical Christianity, teach that salvation is by works. That is, they teach that you achieve whatever that religion promises by working for it. If you want nirvana, says the Hindu, we must work for good karma. If you want paradise, says the Muslim, you must make sure you have more good works than bad. If you want a heaven, says the Roman Catholic, then you must make sure you trust Jesus and add good works to your faith in Christ. And this is the way of all religions. Even our secular culture, we see this principle of it works. If you want to avoid being canceled, then you have to keep up with the ever-changing code of conduct being pushed through the various influencers of our day. The principle of works is everywhere in human thought, philosophy, and religion. Only biblical Christianity says, now listen to these verses, I just can't believe I get to read them to you. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Our salvation is not a result of anything we do. It is God's workmanship. It's God's good deed. It's Him working for us. That's how we are saved, by grace and not by works. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. We hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Completely distinct from anything the Bible would ever command you to do in the law, that's how we're saved. We are saved apart from works, but because of God's grace. Or Romans 9.16. Salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So if you're feeling like, man, I need to put out more in my Christian life, well, that may be the truth, but not for you to be saved. Because human, because salvation does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Titus 3, 5 through 7. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Christians are Christians, and Christians are saved, and Christians are born again, and Christians are going to heaven, not by anything they do, not by any righteousness they've accomplished, not by any works of the law they've obeyed, but purely, completely, 110% by the will and the exertion of God himself, by God's grace, by God's mercy. Amen. Now, why am I reading all these verses? Well, because if someone were to come up to you with a fortune cookie and say, inside that fortune cookie is the very essence of Christian faith, and you put that fortune cookie on your pocket and and get stranded on a desert island and think, man, I should really open up that fortune cookie with the very essence of the Christian faith in it. And if in that fortune cookie, the only verses you had were Matthew 6, 14 and 15, if you forgive others, you'll be forgiven. If you don't forgive others, you won't be forgiven. Well, you would think to yourself, and you wouldn't be crazy, man, I better forgive enough to be forgiven. I better know enough forgiveness work so that I can be forgiven. And if I don't do this forgiveness work, I will not be forgiven. If you were to only have these two verses and you were to be living in a world that's constantly teaching us that salvation is by works and then you get this as all you've got from the Bible, you would, be, you would not be crazy to conclude you better work hard at forgiveness or you're not going to be saved. But here's the thing. The Bible does not come to us, praise the Lord, in fortune cookies. It comes to us in an entire book. And we have to always be aware of the rest of the book. Really, I'm making this point because I want to teach you two super important principles of interpretation. Two principles that you ought to be thinking about when you come to read your Bible morning by morning or day by day. As you read your Bible, there's two things you ought to always have in your mind. And the first is this, that the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. The Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. 
If you're walking through life and going, hey man, all the religions of the world, they teach that you got to do this and you'll get that. And look what I got. I got these two verses that say, if you do this, you'll get that. I guess it must mean I need to forgive a lot to be forgiven. You'd come to that interpretation unless you were searching the Bible to get your understanding of things. And you were seeing that over and over and over, there's one thing you can't be mistaken about by reading a lot of Bible. You do not get saved by works. You're saved completely by grace. So if you get a couple of verses isolated in a room and they're kind of in the corner, you're thinking, I'm looking to me like you, you're telling me I'll be saved by works. You'd be like, that can't be right. Because I know the rest of the Bible. Here's the second principle of interpretation that we should always keep in our minds. We always let the clear parts of the Bible interpret the less clear parts. So when you've got principle after principle, it's not by works, it's not by works, it's not by works, it's not by works, it's by faith, it's by grace, it's by God's grace, and then you come to a verse like this and you go, maybe it's by works. Your brain just ought to shout, no! There's too much in the rest of the Bible to make that clear. So, why does Jesus speak like this? If this passage is not teaching salvation by works or forgive enough and you'll get forgiven, what is this passage teaching? So if I just totally lost you for the last 10 minutes, like that was confusing, I hope he starts making sense again. Come back in and I'll try to start making sense again. What are these verses trying to do? These verses, which were originally preached to believers, are reminding us that a true experience with God's grace and forgiveness will always make us forgiving. A true experience of God's grace and forgiveness will always make us forgiving. What is happening in these verses is that we have a condition. If you want to be forgiven, you need to forgive. Now the question is, what's that condition doing? What's it trying to communicate? Is it trying to teach us that salvation is by the work of forgiving? No. What is it doing then? It is testing us to see if we really understand what we're asking for. It's testing us to see if we really understand what we're asking for. Now think about this with me, and if you make it through that, I'll tell you a story. So think about this with me. When we say, Father, forgive me. When we say, Father, forgive me. What are we saying? We're saying we're sinners. We're saying we're rebels against God. We're saying we've offended, and not just offended anyone, but offended God. We're saying that we understand who we've offended against, and that's why we're asking him to forgive us. And we're saying that there's nothing we can do. We can't, Lord, we're not coming, Lord, I'm gonna get better, I'm gonna improve. We're just saying, will you forgive? We're making it clear that we have no hope of doing anything. We're putting all the onus on him. Would you do something? Would you forgive me? Because there's nothing I can do. I'm just in a mess. Would you forgive me? And on top of that, we're praying it because we actually think and hope he will. 
Because he's promised that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So when we come to God with those little words, Father, forgive me, we are saying deep things about our sin and God's holiness and his promise to forgive us. If we then turn around to someone who's sinned against us, and we begin to insist that we will not forgive them, what are we saying? We're showing that our hearts have not been touched by God's mercy. We're acting like this guy's sins are bigger than our sins. We're acting like we have a right to be unflinchingly just when God has been sacrificially merciful. We're showing that we do not know what we're asking God to do for us. We're acting like we deserve forgiveness and this person does not. So basically, we're totally, we're praying the prayer, forgive us our sins, but we've got no idea what we're talking about because if we did, we'd have marked hearts of mercy towards those who've sinned against us. So what's Jesus doing? He's putting out something that tests us for hypocrisy not that calls us to work for our salvation. Well, I could try to explain this all day, but Jesus did much better with a story, so let's listen to it. The story comes from Matthew 18, and there it tells us Jesus told us a parable, which is a story with a spiritual truth. And the story came up when he was discussing forgiveness with his disciples. And let me read the whole encounter to you. So Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Peter's like, there's got to be a limit to this. I mean, come on, let's be reasonable. And Jesus said, um, and, and Peter, Peter thought he was being really, I mean, he thought, I'm going to really stretch this out, show Jesus I've been learning a thing or two. And he says, as many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times but 77, or in some other versions, seven times seven, 70 times. And I remember hearing an old preacher years ago saying, if you're doing the math, you've missed the point, okay? It means, it means we are to forgive and to forgive and to forgive, even as God has forgiven us. And then Jesus goes on and tells a story that shows us the spiritual dynamic that's at work when we're not forgiving. He says in chapter 18, verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. So here's how my kingdom works. Let me compare it to a king. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his sermon, servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10 thousand talents. So I did a little research. A talent is about 60,000 US dollars. So 10,000 talents is about 2 billion. That's two personal net worths of LeBron James, a little less than four Tom Cruises or three Taylor Swifts before the upcoming tour. So you've got, so you've, you, you've got, you've got this man who's in insane amounts of debt. Two billion dollars. And his master comes to him to settle things. And this guy, with a lot of wishful thinking, fell on his knees, verse 26, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. I'm going to work and work and work, and I'll get the whole two billion. 
And then, instead of saying, okay, I see your work ethic, see what you can do, says in verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Some of you have got a thousand bucks on a credit card or 10,000 bucks on a credit card or 20,000 bucks in student loans and you're like, Lord, if you would just make it go away. This guy got that with two billion. So he goes out for a walk and it says, but when the same servant went out he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred, not talents, but denarii. It's about 800 bucks. Three weeks work at Kentucky minimum wage, two weeks at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and the guy who's just been forgiven $2 billion grabs the guy who owes him $800 by the neck and assaults him. And starts choking him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now, at this point, the guy who owed two billion should be having major spiritual deja vu. He should be having major, I've been there, brother. But it doesn't do that to him at all. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw that this had taken place, when the community thought, saw what was going on, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, righteous anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There's a couple of truths we should note from this parable. First of all, the debt we owe God for our sins is infinitely greater than the debt any man who sins against us owes us. To use a story that even falls short of the reality, we're in the $2 billion range with God. And anyone who's ever sinned in us is, is into us for a couple hundred bucks. They aren't even comparable. You see, our sins are measured in proportion to the greatness of the being we sin against. Oftentimes we think of sins in terms of, uh, you know, there's theft, then there's murder, and there's that kind of order. And then there's some degree of that. Not all sins are equal, according to scriptures. They're all equally deserving of hell, but they're not all equal. But when we measure sins according to their rank as sins, we miss this, that what makes a sin horrible is not what it is, but who it's against. So one person illustrated it. If you kick a mouse, it might be excusable. If you kick a dog brutally, it's cruel. 
If you kick a baby, it's positively wicked. If you kill a mouse, it might be wise. If you kill a cat for no reason, it's cruel. If you kill your son, you're a murderer. And if you kill the president, you are a murderer and a traitor. Our guilt and our sin debt increase according to the being we assault and sin against. When we sin against God, it is infinitely greater than when others sin against us. I should just note here, many times people have a hard time understanding the doctrine of hell. Really? Lies get you an eternal hell? Lust gets you an eternal hell? You're never going to get to hell from just looking at the act, beloved. It's who it was against. It's that the sin was against a being of infinite, glorious worth. It was an offense against him. When we sin against God, it's infinitely greater than when others sin against us. It incurs a greater debt. And in this parable, the first servant had much greater debt than the second. And in our lives, our sins create a greater sin debt than anyone ever incurs when they sin against us. When we're asking God to forgive us, but refusing to forgive others, we're acting like they have offered more offense than we have to God. The other thing we should see from this parable is that receiving mercy creates a sweet moral obligation. Receiving mercy creates a sweet moral obligation in our souls. If we receive mercy from God, we should show mercy to others. It's only right. This is what the whole crowd around the servants was just like, Wait, what's going on? How can this happen? They knew if you get forgiven two billion, you should totally be rattling off forgiveness for 800. So when we ask God to forgive us and refuse to forgive others, we are acting like God has no right to expect us to be merciful in light of his mercy. These conditions, if you forgive, I'll forgive. If you don't forgive, I won't. They're not a call to work your way to heaven by being, a forgiving, by being forgiven enough. They're a test of the soul. Do you even know what you're talking about? Have you even taken in what it means that you're not going to hell where you deserve? You're not going to pay for any of your lies, your gossip, your slander, your crimes, your lust. You're not going to pay for any of it. Instead, you're going to go to heaven and be with Jesus and God the Father at the expense of his son forever and ever and ever without ever paying a dime. And just because he forgave you, that creates a moral obligation in the soul that's not, oh man, I gotta forgive. It's much more like what Lloyd-Jones said when he said, when I am before God, in touch with his forgiveness, I find my heart willing to forgive anyone anything. And if you don't find your heart willing to forgive anyone anything, then it's time for a season alone, thinking about who God is, who your sin 
is against and what it is. And who died on the cross to pay for all of that sin and how freely, with any contribution of your own, you enter into all that he has given to you. So this brings me to my, first, my fourth point. Are you a forgiving person? Are you a forgiving person? As one who loves you, loves my own soul, I know I can help us experience more of God's forgiveness if I can help us to be more forgiving. Because there's an assurance aspect, right? If you are forgiving others, you're forgiven. That's what the, the passage says. But if you're not gonna forgive others, don't, don't play with me, says God. You'll not be forgiven. So are you a forgiving person? And I think there's really good insight for us in Ephesians chapter four, verse 31 and 32. There's really good insight for us in Ephesians chapter four, verse 31, 32. And what Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 is gonna do for us is gonna get us down in the weeds. Because one of the things I've found uh, dealing with smaller human beings in my home is that um, if you ask this abstract question, have you forgiven your sibling? The answer is almost always yes, totally, good, down. And then if you watch the attitudes that actually start to surface, you start to think, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure this word means what you think it means, right? <laughs> And that, that, that means that we need to get down to the details into what does unforgiveness look like? What does it look like? How does it dress on a daily basis? You mean an abstract theological test? Everyone here unforgiving? I'm unforgiving. I'm for the other one. You know, whatever. I should stop. Okay, so back to the notes. Anyway, um, let's look at what it is in detail. Okay, let me give you a little context. In Ephesians chapter four in this section, we have a number of contrasts. What should you put off, what should you put on? What do you put off, what do you put on? And so the, the Bible will say, put off deceit and tell the truth to one another. It'll say, let the thief no longer steal, but put on this, let him do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to give. Okay, so there's this pattern of put off, put on. And this passage we're gonna look at is the last put off, put on passage, telling us what to get rid of since we're Christians, what to embrace since we're believers. And the first, and here's what it says. It says in chapter four, verse 31, here's the put off, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And here's the put on. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Same motives. God in Christ forgave you, so you be forgiving to one another. Um, the grammar actually kind of works like this. Be kind, that's the command, and there's this participle of means. How do you be kind? Forgiving one another. 
The forgiveness is driving the kindness and the tenderheartedness. And so if that last verse is the, hey, be kind, be tenderhearted, because you're forgiving as you've been forgiven, then the verse right before it is giving you what it looks like when you're not kind, when you're not tenderhearted, and when you're not walking in God's forgiveness and your forgiveness of others. So let's just walk through those, those, those words. Let's just walk through those manifestations of unforgiveness. Because I'll tell you what, you ask me an abstract question, Ryan, are you forgiving? Yeah, I'm forgiving. And then get down into the weeds and ask, have you shown any of these characteristics this week? Now that's another question. And then I have to ask, what am I not forgiving? What's going on here? So the first one is bitterness. Bitterness. One of the effects that happens in our souls when we won't forgive someone is we stop being sweet towards them and we become bitter. It's a great word. It just creates a sourness, a bitterness in our own souls. Jim Wilson has written a helpful little booklet you can find online about bitterness. And then in that book, he writes, I think it's called Overcoming Bitterness. I've read it a couple of times, it's very helpful. He writes, you can see bitterness in the eyes, in the lines of the face, even if the person is young. You can see it in their mouth. You can see it when they're smiling or laughing. You can see it in the tone of their voices. You can hear it when they protest that they are not bitter. The bitterness is central and pervades everything. When we're bitter, there's no sweetness in us towards the person we're angry with. And it's interesting, this has come up twice in the preaching in the last year. Pastor Jeff has pointed out Naomi had no sweetness towards God for the way he treated her. She was bitter. Uh, Pastor Joshua pointed out how Jonah had the same kind of bitterness towards God. He's angry when God took away his shade tree. And we get bitter with other people, sometimes because of real offenses, but honestly, Sometimes because of perceived offenses, and once you're bitter, there's really nothing a person can do because you know what's really going on, right? I know they were trying to make up to me and trying to be nice, but I know why they do that. We begin to see everything through a bitter lens. I think it's Wilson who points out, one of the, things, one of the, one of the telltale signs of bitterness is you remember details. Okay? When you're bitter, oh boy, you remember the exact words, the exact place, the exact tone. You, you, you can rehearse it over and over and over again. We begin to see everything through a bitter lens. The other thing that I, I learned a while back that I really have been helped by is that bitterness, it, it's different than other sins. It's different. If I lie, I gotta stare at that lie until I confess it. If I steal, I have something that's not mine. You stole that. But with bitterness, you are fixated on what they did. And there's just enough righteous indignation in your soul to shield you from the fact that you have a sin called bitterness. You're just focused on, it's not that I'm bitter, it's that they're bad. But the Bible says that you must and I must repent of being bitter. 
We have to do away with bitterness. We need to put it to death. It's sinful to be bitter, no matter how bad another person is, no matter how continually they've been bad. It is, a, it is sinning against the God who loves you and forgave you to be bitter against another human being. But they lost. Yeah, but you're bitter. It's inconsistent with the forgiveness we have in Jesus. If someone has sinned against you, you can weep over it. You can pray for them. You can even confront them in gentleness and love, but you cannot hold on to bitterness with its entitled anger. Do not hold on to bitterness or you will not experience God's forgiveness yourself. The next two are wrath and anger. I'll handle them together because they're very closely related. Wrath and anger. Anger is a desire to destroy. We get mad at things we want to get rid of and destroy. The first word might be more like an outburst of rage, wrath. The second, more of a settled anger. Of course, there is a righteous anger. There is such a thing as being offended that God's name has been dishonored. But then there's a far more common anger and wrath that fill our souls over personal offense. We deserve better. How could they? I'm going to let them have it. All of these are opposed to the spirit of forgiveness, which means they're opposed to the spirit of Christ. A forgiving spirit can overlook a small offense. It can confront an offense with a desire to forgive and make up, but we are forbidden from being angry. It is opposed to our call to be like Christ, who instead of pouring God's righteous anger on us, took it on himself. One of the best moments in my entire life was Jeff King looking at me in a difficult situation saying, you know, you have no right to be angry here. You must stop it. And it was so interesting because I'd had lust in that category for years. I'd always known I have to stop lust, I have to fight lust, but anger is so much easier to justify. Even though Jesus deals with anger before lust in the Sermon on the Mount. We are forbidden from all sinful anger. And we are prone to thinking our anger is more righteous than it really is. And we will kill our spiritual lives with that attitude of unforgiveness because God will not forgive us when we're holding on to not forgiving others. Clamor. You see that next word, clamor. The word means a loud cry or a shout. And where there's a lack of forgiveness, there will be yelling. This sin is being committed whenever we have shouting matches in our homes. I have often found it easy to excuse yelling because God wants me to passionately hate sin. However, I've lived long enough in this church to know that there are many families that fight sin without adding the sin of yelling at each other. And it's much more effective much less exasperating. Yelling at people does not come from a heart that is saying, the main thing I want to do about your sin is to forgive it. Slander. Do you see it there in the passage? Slander often comes when we have been sinned against, but instead of confronting the person 
to their face, we drag their name to the mud when they're not around. It's a way of destroying them without them seeing it. We spread lies about them or exaggerate reports about them. We denigrate and defame instead of forgiving their sins and then covering them and forgetting them like God does with ours. This is to be utterly put away. It has no place in the church. Christians are to run from this sin like they would from embezzlement or murder or theft. These are the sins that will turn your kids away from Jesus. Where you're going to church every Sunday, but when they get you behind closed doors, there's clamor, anger, wrath, slander, bitterness. It just all says, all my parents are involved with with religion is a big charade. They don't mean it, not when they're all alone. Finally, notice malice. Malice is a set desire to hurt someone. You're not going to forgive their debt, but you will make them pay. And this unforgiving attitude must be eradicated from our lives. If we are malicious to someone else, how can we expect God to be merciful to us? Can you imagine if God was malicious? We would have every reason to be destroyed. Finally, Paul gives us some commands that go along with forgiveness. I love this. What's the first thing you're able to do when you're forgiving? Be nice. Be kind. Paul says, be kind to one another. When we're angry, we can't find it in ourselves to speak nicely. When we're forgiving, we find it in ourselves to confront others in a spirit of gentleness. We can be kind. If you can't be kind, to someone, it's a pretty good, indicator, pretty good indicator that you're not forgiven them. And you say, but I'm tired. I'm menopausal. I'm depressed. God knew about all those things when he wrote his word. If we will keep our harps up close to his cross and remember his forgiveness, we will find the strength and the motivation to be kind in the face of all kinds of physical and circumstantial challenges. Notice the next one. Be tender-hearted. When people sin against us, the natural reaction is to get a hard-hearted, self-protecting, caustic, sarcastic, prickly, mean spirit. But a tender-hearted person can feel the pains compassionately of someone who's hurt them. They know they're sinners and they can be tender to their fellow sinners. They are compassionate to the one who was not compassionate and righteous with them. Now, all of this might seem like pie in the sky of the religion, but beloved, it can be done. It can be done because Jesus has fully paid for all of our sins. He has forgiven us. We did not kick the dog or kill a sibling. Our sins are against God. We are the kind of people who would have hung him on a tree, but he hung on that tree for people like us because he's kind and tender-hearted. So we can release and let go of bitterness, malice, wrath, clamor, anger, and all the rest. Well, let's deal with a few special cases and then we'll be done our time in the Word. 
Some of you are listening to this and you're saying to yourself, I have forgiven those who sinned against me, but I still sometimes have bitter thoughts and angry memories. Have I really forgiven? I imagine you have. Whenever we make a clean break with sin, there are still remnants that can come back to tempt us. The person who is given to porn may have sinful images come into their minds years later. The person who gave up stealing years ago may find greed and entitlement welling up in their soul long after they quit stealing. If you have forgiven someone and you find that feelings of bitterness or anger well up in your soul, the answer is not to doubt that you've ever forgiven them, it's to keep forgiving. It's to keep releasing the debt they have against you. Keep wiping it away. Uh, Don Whitney, in his excellent little book, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Life, tells of the anger and bitterness he felt towards a woman in his first church who lied about him, organized secret meetings with him, ruined both he and his wife's health with her persecution. And he tells of after he had forgiven her, he would still get feelings of bitterness and rage and find himself clenching his fists. But he would just hold on to the promise to forgive that he had made. And over time, things got easier and the angry feelings began to diminish. His story reminds us that being tempted to go back on forgiveness does not mean you've not forgiven. It just means you need to press on and continue to forgive. You've, been, you've forgiven, but you need to keep up the fight to forgive. Rest assured that as you are in the fight to forgive, he will forgive you any sins you confess to him. Second thing I want to just tackle before we're done. Some of you may be thinking, I would forgive the person who sins against me, but they don't think they've done anything wrong. Or if they do think they've done anything wrong, they won't repent to me. Well, here we need to understand that forgiveness, for forgiveness to do the full work of reconciliation, it really is transactional. It involves two parties. With God, he forgives us once we repent and believe. Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, didn't mean everyone who heard him got to heaven. It meant that Jesus was praying for them to be forgiven, and when they repented days later at Pentecost, many of them were. But there is no just unilateral forgiveness with God. God forgives those who repent and believe. It's a transaction with two sides involved. With people, too, for forgiveness to bring reconciliation, there must be two parties involved. They must ask for forgiveness for you, or, or ask for forgiveness if you confront them, and then you can forgive and a relationship can be restored. What about when they won't ask for forgiveness or they don't even see their sin? Well, in that case, you want to have a disposition of forgiveness, a willingness to forgive. We are only responsible to be at peace with all men insofar as it depends on us. God has not made us so that we're trapped by anyone else's attitudes. You cannot forgive those who will not repent, but you can stay away from bitterness and anger and malice by being ready to forgive. You can be ready to forgive and free from bitterness and anger and malice. You may not be able to restore the relationship just by being willing, but in your willingness, you can be kind and tender-hearted to the person you would love to forgive. And finally, 
What about someone who asks me to forgive them? Do I have to trust them immediately? In a normal, healthy relationship, the answer is yes. And I need to say that first because we're too sinful for me not to say that. All of us are prone to say, I forgive you, but I don't trust you as if we were so high and mighty and trustworthy ourselves. So normally, yes, forgiveness and trust should walk hand in hand. But there are situations where we should be wiser than that. When a man confesses to child abuse, we do not put them in the care of children the Sunday after they repent and believe. When a woman confesses to adultery, it can be wise to ask where she's going this Friday night. Forgiveness does not mean immediate trust. Think about this. When God forgives people, he does not immediately make them elders in the church. Why? Because they have to prove themselves trustworthy. Elders must not just be forgiven, but above reproach. As my friend Paul Martin says, justification is not the qualification for ministry. Proven character is. In the same way, there may be people you have forgiven who you're not ready to be alone with. Or there's people who are in charge or, or you're not ready to be vulnerable with. You should seek counsel about what lines to draw around a person who's repentant but has been dangerous and harmful. You should seek counsel from more trusted and mature Christians in your life to make sure that appropriate lines are being drawn so that you don't just, since someone's not using your forgiveness as an opportunity to hurt you again. Well, I could say a little more, but I'll just close with that. Beloved, we want to keep the channels of God's grace flowing at Emmanuel. We want to be a people who are constantly experiencing his forgiveness. And that means looking to where he forgave us in Christ and then making sure we're forgiving others. I guess I need to say this before I close. Is there someone you need to go talk to? Is there someone you need to go and speak to about a sin? Not just in the moment when you're mad. That's how it happens, right? Okay, I'm asking you to say sorry. Well, that doesn't usually work very well. But is there someone you need to go to with a heart ready to forgive them and then extend that forgiveness? And as you extend it to feel afresh God's forgiveness of you. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask you that this meal we're about to take, this bread and this cup, would provide for us the same kind of test this passage does to remind us that we should not come here celebrating your forgiveness of us while we will not forgive others. But Lord, rather, let us celebrate this meal in sincerity and truth, forgiving those who've sinned against us and coming for this sweet reminder of your forgiveness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.